Well, kia ora, and I'm really, really excited to share this episode with you all. And I know lots of you that know Helen are excited as well. Now, Helen Thayer, we had her on the podcast in season one. She was actually the finale for season one last year. If you don't know Helen, you've got to go back and listen to that episode because she shares some of her stories behind her accomplishments because she is one of the first people to walk across the Sahara and Gobi Desert. She walked Death Valley at 80. She's also the first woman and New Zealander to walk to the magnetic North Pole, named as one of the top explorers of the 20th century by National Geographic. Um, Her accomplishments and her stories are endless. And I remember last time, stories of kidnapping, stories of polar bear encounters and killer bees swarms. It was endless, endless yarns. And so we needed to get her back on and share more of her journey, things she didn't even get to uncover in that first episode. So make sure you check that one out. But today, I sat down with Helen and we talked a little bit more about her Magnetic North Pole journey, some other polar bear encounters that she didn't share last time around. We also talked about the book she's just finishing, writing about her uh, her companion, Charlie, who acted as a go-between between her husband, herself, and a pack of wild wolves that they were studying um, in the Arctic, which was <laughs> just crazy. And I also wanted to know more about her Amazon journey, which included poison darts, getting shot at them, um, encounters with the tribesmen, as well as awesome uh, experiences in schools just sharing what is ice, what is a road, what, what is a car. So some pretty cool stories. I even managed to uh, sneak in how she somehow managed to be the national luge champion in the USA as well as represent three different countries in the international track and field. So yeah, put it this way, there's lots more yarns to come and I know you're going to love this one. Helen, she's such an awesome lady and I hope you really enjoy this conversation as much as I did. But yeah, Helen, it's been six months since we last had you on, and um, what have you been doing in the last six months? To I haven't really, haven't really asked. Well, I finished one job that I've at last finished. Has finished the book um, I'm, I've written about Charlie, the dog that walked at my side when I skied to the North Pole. That's right. You were in the middle of that last time. Yes, yeah, so it's taken me ages, uh, several years, to write this book because I've written other things in addition to. But this has been one that's always been there. But I've changed the format so many times because he lived to be 23 years old, and when I met him, of course, he was an Inuit dog. Uh, living out on the ice with the other dogs with no name. So then he went to the pole with me. Well, that was a whole story right there. Mm. Then he came home. And then that was another interesting story of adjusting to from the Arctic environment to our environment here, warmer climate and the green. He'd never seen a tree before or grass yeah. or cats or anything like that. Uh, and so he... Um, uh, and he didn't know anything about goats, but our white goat, he treated that white goat as a polar bear. And he oh. took him on the ground one day and to stop that. So there are all sorts of adjustments and <clears throat> taking the first bath and things like that. That was an amazing experience. Yeah, I bet it was. <laughs> for all of us. <laughs> it was a, in the book, I called it a distressing experience for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You've walked to the North Pole, but have you ever tried to bathe the dog? <laughs> And not a dog is 94 pounds, uh, uh, very muscular, very determined, and hated water. Mm. And so, um, and then, of course, we went on to the year living with wolves, where he was the reason that my husband was able to make this study. 
because nobody had, you just don't turn up at a wolf den and say, hi, I'm here for a year. The wolves will say, no, you're not. We're leaving. <laughs> Whatever you want, but we're gone permanently. Yeah. So that wouldn't have worked at all well. Because we, so, we never talked about that last time. I know we brushed over it, but you did spend a year in the Arctic Circle, didn't you? That's right, yes. In the Richardson Mountains, we found a den uh, with the help of, a, of an Inuit biologist who'd studied, spent a lifetime studying wolves. And he became a very close friend. And, um, and so the, uh, and we were able to locate this den. And then uh, also we studied uh, uh, more wolves out on the Arctic ice cap north of the... Um, up toward the North Pole and that up into that area to where we were on the actually ice pack. We went on land to study the reason why wolves are out there living with polar bears. Why are they there hmm. um, when, they're, when their prey is normally on land because these are land-bound animals? Now, why are you out here with polar bears? Well, hmm. of course, we discovered the food sharing between uh, of the seals that the polar bears hunt and they, they, um, they, they were sharing with that seal meat with the wolves wow. so so in order to to be able to live close we were about the, the summer pack was the entire summer we were about at 100 feet from the wolf den uh for the entire summer and the only reason we could get that close and have the wolves be eventually be comfortable with that was we had to have a go-between because wolves do not take very kindly to humans because yeah. humans and so um but Charlie was part wolf. His grandfather had been an Arctic wolf. Wow, okay. So, so a little bit back in his in his uh, ancestry, he was part wolf. So, mm. And he um, was very, when he was among wolves, and he was actually raised with juvenile wolves in the Arctic, which is quite common with these dogs in the north. Wolves come in and they'll interact with the dogs in, in many ways. And so um, they will even mate and then they... This is how Charlie was born because his grandfather was a was a wolf, and they come in, and then they 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 uh, they, they they meet up with these um, these dogs in the villages, and so um, with that wolf, those wolf genes, uh, and the fact that he'd been raised among juvenile wolves, Charlie became very wolf-like. Okay, uh, and so he was our go-between, mm. and the wolves now they could have. Uh, totally um just just tried to drive him away or they tried could have tried to kill him hmm. or they could accept him and they accepted him as one of their own oh wow which, which meant that they accepted bill and i as his pack yeah and after several weeks of maneuvering around and keeping our eyes always averted never looked directly at the wolves we always looked away we copied charlie yeah <clears throat> showed total submission to the alpha wolf immediately. So we did the same. And then finally, the wolves were comfortable with our presence. But it was all because of Charlie. It was an experiment that we didn't know would work yeah. until we could it actually working. And how did you establish who the alpha wolf was? Was he the biggest or just the dominant? Well, no, they tell. They're very dominant. Um, the, the family will come out and confront you and he'll be in front. Right. And he one defending his family and his alpha female will be close by. Mm. The alpha male and alpha female are the only two that have the pups of the year and they head up the family. Then you get the beta animal all the way down. As, as you can imagine a ladder 
and the alpha male is on top where there's alpha female. And then all the way down the ladder, these different wolves at different levels, all the way down to the poor Omega, who's the really the, the chopping block for the whole family. When something goes wrong, they pick on him every time. Yeah, He's yeah. the last to eat and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's a tremendously interesting year, but <clears throat> just because of Charlie. Well, so you see, I had the, the story of, of going to the pole with him, then the then the the uh, the intermediate plays a part of the story where we came home and all the adjustments and, yeah. and some really funny really funny episodes. I can imagine. And hiking in the Cascade Mountains, we live in the Cascade the foothills, and then going off to live with the wolves. So now, how was I going to write this book yeah. without it being a five hundred page enormous volume? Yeah. And I didn't want to split it in two because that seemed to be a bit ridiculous. So then I had to go, I wrote this, I wrote it out in its entirety. And then I had to come go back in and cut it down to where it would fit in a reasonable size book. Yeah. And and, it, it, and I kept changing my mind and fill, filling this in and leaving that out. No, oh, no, I need that in. No, oh, no, I need to put that out. Yeah. And so it took me a long time. But finally I got it together. <clears throat> Now I'm in the process of sorting the photos. And I think I'm going to, in spite of the extra expense, I think I'm going to include color photos in this one because nice. uh, it's Charlie's book and I'm, I'm calling it Charlie the Hero at my side. Yeah. And I already have the cover designed and it's it's in the process of being published now. So. Oh, that's so wicked. Because, I mean, I, I even when we talked about last time the story of, <laughs> of you walking to the pole, even I remember people commentating on on the the particular aspect of the story when the polar bear came and flipped your cart and it was Charlie that actually you know saved your butt saved a little bit life. you know yeah he saved my life yes oh yes well I had seven confrontations going to the pole which is 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 considered a lot but then the Inuit people warned me before I left if you're going to go alone on foot mm. you're going to have more confrontations with polar bears mm. that's why they urged me to either take a dog team. And they would teach me how to run a dog team. And uh, and I would be safer because I'd have, as they said, you'd have many voices at night to warn you of approaching bears. Plus, a bear won't approach a, a, a person if they're surrounded by a whole team of dogs. And, um, uh, and then, of course, there was the other option, go by snowmobile. Well, uh, that would have been really easy. You know, you just hop on a snowmobile and you drive the thing. Well, that yeah. didn't appeal before. But that gives you fast escape. But even with a dog team, you can get away because you can just just go yeah. and be gone. But if you're traveling on skis by yourself, you're stuck. Mm. You can't run uh, because the polar bear at 35 miles an hour will outstrip you every time and you're dead. Yeah, yeah. When he gets you, you're done. You're done because now you become prey because you're running. Mm. And, then, um, and, of course, it's just, just the fact that polar bears are used to dealing with one one object at a time, one seal at a time. They're not used to a lot of. So if they see a bunch of dogs and surrounding a person, that's not so attractive. But that one person, that's why if you're, they, now they say um, in Alaska, we've also been among the grizzlies, uh, or lay down and pretend you're dead. Well, it doesn't appeal to me either because, my goodness. But anyway, <laughs> Well, I'm asking for trouble here. That doesn't that doesn't seem to be very attractive to me. But anyway, um, with a polar bear, never lay down because now you look like a seal, seal laying on the ice, mm. and you're prey. You're going to get it. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, end of story right there. 
And so there are all these things that had to be taken into consideration. And but finally, I said, you know, I want to go alone. I'll be on skis. And so how about a dog? And you know, I've heard of these polar bear dogs. Well, okay. So they gave me uh, Charlie. Well, actually, I bought him from him, from them. And uh, he was a polar bear dog. His job had been to keep polar bears out of the village. Mm. And so he was. He's, he was a good dog just to walk at my side, and he just loved to chase bears. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was his cup of tea. How did you establish that initial connection with those Inuit people? Because I remember you telling me that you lived with them for a while, and you and you learned what you needed to learn to, 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 to do your journey. But how did you even establish that first contact? Because we're talking back in the day where, you know, you couldn't just eat. Well, I don't know if the email system was happening up and over there at that time of time. You know, how did you even establish that? Well, I simply flew up to Resolute Bay, the place where I would begin my journey. It's just about 600 miles above the Arctic Circle. I just simply flew up and I went to the local inn, which was run by a Caucasian couple, and I told them what I wanted to do. And they looked at me and they thought I was crazy right <laughs> off. I didn't mind that. You've had that a few times, haven't you? <laughs> no, I wasn't too concerned about that. You know, your opinion is what your what your opinion is. Doesn't necessarily mean it's mine. Mm. And so go from there. And then um and I told them what I wanted to do. And so um and the, the I didn't know at this time that a woman hadn't done it before. And he said, you know, a woman has never done this before and um asked me how old I was. And I said, Well, when I start I'll be fifty and he about dropped dead. He said, Oh no, no, no. Yeah. That's way too old. You can't do that. And I said, well, let's forget about all that. I'll make those decisions. I need to just find someone who's going to – because I, I was a mountain climber. I climbed to 27,000 feet in uh, Tajikistan and many other high mountains around the world. So, But, you know, as I always say, if you meet a polar bear at 27,000 feet, you know you've got the wrong map. <laughs> so I, I had to come down to sea level and start – how do I deal with – the Arctic ice pack because I'd be walking across the Arctic Ocean on a on a layer of ice, and if you're not careful, you can go through. And if you go through, very often you can't get out. You go under the. In fact, one woman, <clears throat> a few years after I made this journey, she tried the same thing, mm. but she went through the ice and underneath and never could get out and simply dif- disappeared, mm. sled and all, just sunk right. Yeah, and just a terrible. She was really an amazing lady. But anyway. Um, that's so that's that, a very real danger then, eh? Because I mean, you've got to know. Yeah, you're, you're, it's dangers left, right, up, and down. You know. Yeah, you've got to read the ice. <clears throat> you've got to know that grey ice out there. That means it's salt laden and it's new. Uh, and then and the different coloured ice there and the roughness of it. Um, you can read the ice there and to sort of tell whether it's safe to, to travel across. Then there's always the polar bears, and then the. Um, Going across the Arctic Ocean, the ice is not smooth like an ice rink. It's very, very rough in places. In fact, most of it is because the ice pack is moving all the time. So it piles up at huge ridges called pressure ridges. Sometimes they can be 30, 40 feet high. Sometimes they might just be like four or five feet high. But you have to climb over these things. Hmm. And uh, they're very dangerous because they open and close and big blocks of ice will fall and tumble and and if one does, you know, some of them are as big as a Volkswagen car. <clears throat> yeah. So it's very dangerous, apart from the polar bears. And then I had to learn, now, what do I do when I meet a polar bear? You can't just say, hi, I'm here. I'm <laughs> having a lovely day. Let's share a hamburger. We can't do that. <laughs> figure this out. Yeah. Because 
uh, to a polar bear your food, period. You're on the menu. Mm. Now, how do I get off this menu? So I went out on the ice. Uh, uh, the man, the, my helper, his name was uh, the Caucasian man who owned the inn and his wife. His name was Basil. He was an Indian man from India. And um, somehow found himself to the, his way to the Arctic and he loved it so much he stayed and created this beautiful inn. Mm. And anyway, um, I, they contacted some Inuit and they were so, well, first of all, they were called because women don't, Inuit women don't do this sort of thing. It just isn't done. Mm. And, and so they go, got over the idea of fact, the first thing, you're a woman, oh my goodness, and you're how old? Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I, they, they finally decide that I was determined to do it and this is what I'm going to do. So you might as well teach me how to do it so I can come back and tell you about it. Oh, okay. So then they became my friends and they took me out on the ice and they showed me uh, what I, you know, to re how to read the ice. Um, also, how to navigate if you're blind because you can go snow blind because of the glare of the snow. The whiteout, yeah. Yeah, if that happens then you can still navigate with the grooves in the ice and so forth. And now what to do with about a polar bear? How do you, the polar bear is approaching you, what do you do and, and all this sort of thing. And then, of course, Charlie was key there because I had a, I, the only mistake I made in my gear was that I took a rifle instead of a shotgun. A rifle, um, you, you see, to... to if you're going to shoot, if you have to shoot in, in defense of a polar bear, you have to drop them dead with one shot. Because mm. if you wound it, you're dead. Mm. They're going to get you. Um, they've just become nothing but a fighting machine. And when they're, they're on their last breath, they, they'll get you. And many an Inuit person, has, a hunter, has been killed in that fashion. And that's why they usually go out in twos and threes so they have a backup shot from another direction. But you're all alone. You don't have that. Mm. And so I had to rely on Charlie. So, uh, But a shotgun would have been better. But the law is very clear. You can only shoot a polar bear if it's in strict self-defense. Mm. That means that bear can only be about 20 feet away from you. Mm. If you shoot or wound a bear beyond that, then it's not self-defense. And they'll put you in jail for it. Yeah. And you, and if you... Um, if you have to uh, wound or kill a bear, you have to get on your radio and call base and let them know And because these animals are protected yeah. and they'll come out and investigate. And if they don't like what they see, they'll gather you and your gear up and take you to jail. Mm. And court doesn't come through the village uh, for only every six months. Right. So you're kind of stuck. You're going to be in holding pattern, yeah. Yeah, so in other words, you do not shoot a polar bear unless it's absolutely he's in your face and you've got to do something about this now. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, Charlie was, uh, he was, he was like the key to my, to my success there. Hmm. But I, I, people say, oh, you were so brave to go out there alone among the bears. Bravery has nothing to do with it. I was absolutely 24, well, at least when I was asleep. I wasn't afraid, but every waking moment I was scared to death. Yeah. And to be constantly on watch for bears. Um, it's just, even when I lit my stove to cook my meal at night, it's noisy stove. I'd, I was so nervous because you can't hear a bear approaching. So I had to have Charlie positioned and I have to watch him and any of his reactions. And it was just the most nerve wracking journey for just about a month. Yeah. Just 
living on the edge all the time. And then finally I reached the destination, got on my radio, called call base, I'm here, because they already knew they had tracked me all the way by GPS and so forth. And so they knew exactly where I was every minute of every day. And so then it was time to send a plane to pick me up, take me back to base camp. And boy, when I saw that plane in the air coming in to land, I thought, I can remember saying to Charlie, thank God I don't have to watch for another polar bear. <laughs> to be able to let go and just not have to look over my shoulder anymore. That's right. What was it you had again? It was sandwiches, eh? The pilot sandwiches. Oh, yes, because I had a disaster the last seven days. That's right. <laughs> Like huge winds of over 100 miles an hour, according to one wind meter, swept the, in the last, the biggest storm. It was the biggest of the journey. It was the last one, and it swept my food and fuel away, and some of my equipment. And so, the last seven days, I lived on five walnuts per day. I went from 5,000 calories a day to down to, 50, to under 50, mm. and I hardly had anything to drink. And I did chew ice, but that's a disaster because that produces stomach cramps because of the cold and blisters inside your mouth. That's a mess in itself. And so um, I was starving and deep, really dehydrated. And the pilot, um, I hadn't told him. On, I hadn't told him on my radio calls. I called base every night. I hadn't told him that I was starving and that I'd run out. I, the, the wind had blown away my stuff because I didn't want anybody thinking they had to come out and rescue me. I figured I can make this. I can do this. Mm. And so I'm, I'm going to, if I have to crawl, I will do this because I was so near the finish, only seven days away. And so anyway, he came in and he said, oh, uh, you know, are you hungry? And then I said, yeah, I haven't had much to eat the last seven days. Oh, he had. He was so appalled. He said, here, here's a sandwich. Well, so on the way back, I ate the entire sandwich and the juice and oh, the whole thing. I gave part of the sandwich to Charlie. Yeah. Just we're good friends, and uh, Charlie was okay because he had he had uh, he was on half rations, but he he was okay for food. And I knew I was eating this pilot's lunch, but <laughs> you didn't care. Yeah, you had to. Yeah, you had to do what you do. Um, I think he had breakfast this morning. I didn't. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> T- tell me, Helen, about the the end of um, of Charlie's life. How how did his days um, how did his days end with you? We went hiking in the mountains, which we did it at least two days a week. And he loved, he loved the Cascade Mountains. He just, loved, oh, he couldn't wait for it. Yeah. And he was healthy and strong and doing very well. But he was 23. and That's uh, a good haul. It was amazing for a 94-pound dog to grow, to be that old. Yeah. And, and um, <clears throat> we came home and he ate his dinner and he went to our bedroom and we, he, he slept right alongside the bed. And, well, he used to sleep on the bed for, in the beginning when he came home, but, oh, 94 pounds of a huge dog that spreads himself this <laughs> Yeah. So um, we finally persuaded him. It's a lovely place at the side of the bed. Yeah. And he had to be on my side of the bed. He didn't want to, he was very attached to Bill, but he had to, he was more attached to me. He had to be on my side. Very, we were very, very bonded. Hmm. Anyway, he went to sleep and he just didn't wake up. Oh. It was amazing because he had a good day in the mountains and he was, he seemed fine. We didn't notice any difference. And, was just time for his heart to stop and that was that and so but but he had um when i brought him home um he'd been used to just eating seal meat up north with the inuit so of course i we cooked all of his food from then so he had a really good balanced diet 
and he had once a month he had acupuncture and once a month chiropractic work and so uh, that was his life when he came home and I think all of that extended his his life plus they're a very tough breed of dog and and although um they told me he probably would have only lived about he was about eight years old when I got him mm. I think he lived another year it would be a miracle if he stayed up there yeah but bring him home to the new environment and always enough to drink um because sometimes they didn't have enough to drink up there they had to eat ice mm. and then the nutritious food and the acupuncture and the chiropractic work um he doubled his lifespan you know yeah oh yes at 23 years old uh it, it's considered a miracle for a dog that, especially that size, to hmm. to live that that long. But yeah, I'm sure that when the book comes out, it'll be such a it'll be inspiring read because I mean, behind every person's accomplishments, there is there is a team around them or there's a person around them, and in your case, is a, a, a you know man's best friend, you know. Yeah, dog, and and I also you know I had uh, that typical Kiwi enthusiasm. My parents and my husband were. You know, although a number of friends told me, oh, before I left, uh, the polar bears will kill you, um, <laughs> uh, you'll fall through the ice, or the wind's going to blow you away because, you know, you're not very big, and so you're going to get blown away. And so, well, you know, you listen to all of this stuff and push it aside, but then my parents and my husband were so right behind me, they knew that I would be successful. They just, and so they were very helpful. And then, of course, it was Charlie and, and so regardless of what success you have in life, there's always someone else and something that is, is making a, a major contribution to that. And we always, we always have to recognize that we're not in this world. We, we might think we've done something pretty good, but when you look around yourself, you say, hey, you know, I had help with this. I yeah. really didn't do it alone. I, I'm the first woman to to, to uh, go on foot alone to any of the world's poles <clears throat> well which sounds fine by itself but i did have help i had charlie with me and yeah. he would have given his life for me mm. i knew that in the first polar bear confrontation i could see yeah. as he stepped up front he would have given his life i find it really inspiring too though helen that you used to say things like i was scared you know, because oh, you could, terrifying. you know, you could get out there and say, "I am the, I'm the bravest." And and people, when they hear stories like yours, they they can sometimes not relate because they think I'm not brave like that person. But you're saying here and now, actually, nah, <laughs> I'm as scared as anyone else would have been. I was scared it brought me to tears sometimes. Well, on the first, on the second day, I met three bears in one day. <laughs> at one point, I thought these guys are finishing my journey even before I start. I mean, how? this is going to go on like this, you know, Murphy's Law is, I'm not going to make it. Mm. And there'll be one bear out there is not is just going to do anything, not going to even take any notice. There's got to be one bear out there that cannot be stopped if I'm going to meet them at this rate. Well, I was so frustrated and so angry and so scared. All at once, I burst into tears. Well, my eyelids froze shut. So <laughs> I decided that's the end of that. There'll be no more crying on this expedition <laughs> yeah <laughs> there were a number of times when i could have just just cried out of sheer i'm so sick and tired of being scared half to death here and uh, you know and just to get relieved just to relieve myself of some tension but mm. no 
I knew that if I cried, <laughs> yeah, and it took me about thirty minutes to to, to thaw my eyelids out with warm saliva. Now, and it did occur to me, what an unfortunate thing it would have been if a polar bear had come up, up at that time because I couldn't have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have known which which direction to hit you from. When you talk about being brave, well, <clears throat> and what you know, what is bravery anyway? Um, yeah. We're going to all at one point, some point in our life, we're going to meet something that scares us. It can even be something just emotional that happened at home that's scary, something. But I think bravery, when we talk about bravery, I think it's not so much standing out there and flexing your muscles and trying to be important and showing that you can do anything. No, it's more of how do you, how do you, do you treat that? How do you, how do you treat that bravery? How you, uh, that that moment? Um, how do you act? Uh, what are your thoughts? What are your actions? Um, are you going to just turn and run and fall completely, or do you stand? You're 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 right there on your spot, and you confront your fear, and you get through that door of fear. And once you get through that door of fear, on the other side, there is that calm place where you can think it out and mm. get it figured out. And so I always say bravery is not the great um, thing that you see in the movies as the heroes out there with a big S on their chest, you know, yeah. superwoman or whatever that is. Yeah. Um, it's nothing. It's it's just nothing. It's just, it's more that person who takes that fear, tighten the, you know, tight grip on that fear and handles it mm. and works through it and get to the other side. Mm. Then you've done something, and you don't need to call yourself brave. You just need to say, "Well, I handled it. Yeah. I was successful in working my way through it. I'm not a brave person with the big ass on my chest and and the big muscles. And I mean, I'm five foot two, and I'm this and that. And uh, as I said, the wind will blow you away. You're not very big. Well, you know, and, <laughs> and I don't have a big ass on my chest, but it's how you handle it that you work your way through." bit by bit by bit, and yeah. then you get on the other side. And, and if you stay optimistic, uh, you can't have any negative thoughts. There. Like standing in front of a polar bear, I can't think I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. You will. Mm. You can be quite sure because that's how you're handling it. You're handling it in a way that you will die. But if you handle it in a way, I, I, I know what I'm doing. I keep my eye contact. I stay calm. At least on the outside, you know, inside you're just like jelly, you're quivering jelly. You, yeah. You're ice cold inside, you're so terrified. Yeah. But on the outside, you're calm and you're doing all the things that you've been taught and you're gradually working through the situation. I had a flare gun and I <clears throat> would fire these bright red flares out to land in a row in front of the bears. I kept firing those, uh, uh, firing those out as quickly as I could to land in front of the bears, never behind because you don't want to drive the bear to you, always in the front and as close to them as you can get it. And you just keep firing them, keep firing them. Keep that eye contact that I'd be taught. Don't turn your back, stand straight, make yourself look as big as you can. When you've seen the bear come, you've already stepped over to your sled or your tent to make yourself look bigger. And you've done all these things. So you're working through the problem, even though inside your ice cold was absolute fear. Mm. Doing all the things that you know you've got to do to survive. And then what do you know? The bear finally gives up, goes away. You've won. You're mm. on the other side. You walk through the door. 
oh, what a relief. But keep watching because it might to bears yeah, have, yeah. A, have a getting into the rough ice and turning around and they'll come behind you. And that did happen once. Yeah. And you've got to watch. You keep watching over your shoulder. But at least that mind-wrenching fear is done for now. I can start breathing normally again. And I like what you say about being optimistic. I mean, applying that to whether you're, you're trekking to the North Pole or you're teaching yeah. a class full of 28, you know, students yeah. to, to whatever walk of life, having that <laughs> positive mindset. If you're in the classroom and you're teaching, a, and I've been in the classroom and you're teaching a, a, this, a, a, a class, there's this one particular class. This happened just before the pandemic. Yeah. 32 students and it was a, a, an alternative high school where children who had been bad little children for one reason or other, they were sent to a special school because they're going to get an education according to the government no matter what. Right. Well, they, they don't want to learn anything. They don't even care. So you've got 32 students. Every student is there. They don't want to be there and they could care less about me and what I have to say. They don't even want to hear any of it. But somehow you've got to stand up there and face those students and let them know I'm the teacher and you're here against your will. You don't give a darn about what I'm saying, but you are going to learn. And when I give you a quiz at the end of this, you're going to be able to have to answer some questions or you'll come back tomorrow. Well, so I'm thinking, you know, positively that I can make these kids learn. They will learn. Yeah. I tell them, you will learn. You will be able to answer that quiz I'm going to give you. And it's going to be a difficult one. You will be able to answer. So I'm telling them, yes, you're going to do this. Yeah. And then pretty soon the heads go up and they figure, well, she's pretty persistent. I better listen to this woman. <laughs> yeah. Hey, they did well. Good. They did. But if I had stood up there and I said, these kids, they're never going to learn anything anyway, but I'll do my best anyway. But they're never going to learn. It's deficit uh, thinking, isn't it? Yeah, and and so you pass that right on to them, and the whole atmosphere of the room becomes negative. Mm. But if you're standing up there and you're stating your case as though it's actually going to happen, then it will because they fall into that, figuring it. Yeah, this is going to happen because she says so, and they look at the look in your eye anyway. And better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's positive, that positive thinking. It, yeah. it really. It really works. Well, that, that thinking's got you to so many places. I know last time we spoke, we talked about your adventures in the Gobi and the Sahara and and obviously um, um, in the Arctic. Something you brushed over and I was curious about it um, was even your Amazon journey. You know, I know you love taking photos and some of, I had a look at your website, which people can go to. Um, is it helenthayer.com? Is that the where you, some of your stuff is? Yeah. yeah, and but some of those photos are amazing that you took in the Amazon. But even that expedition, because what did you paddle? Was it 2,000, 2,000? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we had to um, – that was an interesting journey in many ways. Uh, there are a lot of illegal people along the uh, – people doing illegal things along the banks of the Amazon. The Amazon, oh, it can narrow down to something – uh, you know, half a mile wide and other places it's 30 miles wide. And we'd had to paddle past some of these villages. And at one point we um, were on a sort of straight away and there was a little, very small village to one side. We thought we'll go in there and stop a while because it was getting later. 
might be a place to get up away from the all the coma and the crocodile type creatures and so forth and the and the piranhas and and get up there to camp well suddenly we were being shot at well of course we went into jet mode we each were had individual kayaks and we jetted around <laughs> we battled ever so fast in all our lives yeah and we're fortunate we were with the current also and so we, we we paddled really fast around the curve which would put us out of sight then we beached those uh kayaks in a hurry pulled them up into the bushes and just lay real low because they have uh, these um long canoes um um hewn out of logs and with a, but they put a motor on them and they could outstrip us yeah but we had to wait to see if we we're going to be followed and so you know something like that and and being our kayaks were inflatable so it's not good to be shot at if you're an inflatable kayak. Oh, so you were in a um, like a hard plastic kayak. You were in inflatables. Uh, rubberized. Rubberized, yeah. Rubberized, yeah. Rubber, yeah. Um, and they had to be inflatables because sometimes we had to go over rapids and so we'd have to deflate them and then load them on our backs like backpacks and carry them around through the jungle to get around the small waterfall and around the rapids and then, then drop down into the, the river, reinflate, and then go on like that. So we had to be very versatile. Mm. So it, things like that, and um, uh, we had to be very careful. Some of the uh, villages were not friendly. We had one one place where we camped, and all night we could tell we were surrounded by people who didn't want to be seen. Oh and we were in an area of, um, of where uh, the tribe had never been contacted. And we must have been on the very edge of their territory. Yeah. And so they come with poisoned arrows. And so um, uh, we knew that this was not very safe. And so first light, we had to get out of there. But we had to get out carefully to make it look as though we weren't running. Yeah. It's casual, like nothing is going on. And you see the bushes over here moving, but you wouldn't see the people. They're very, very good about concealing themselves. And yeah. And so the all those sorts of things. And then another time we were attacked by a, a swarm of killer bees, these rather large sized bees. And they, 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 uh, they sting in mass. And we heard, we heard the humming first of all. <clears throat> and then we saw this black cloud coming at us down, down the, uh, through the trees, down the, uh, the river. Well, we knew what this was going to be. Well, of course, we couldn't get away fast enough. We were swarmed by these bees and they yeah. stung hundreds of stings. Well, we had two options, either try to fight the bees off, which, you, which really you can't, or dive into the water. And because the bees, of course, don't like the water and you get rid of the bees. But that's where the piranha live. And we were in an area of fairly still water. What we had done, we were off the main channel, up a tributary, short mm. way up where the water was still perfect place for piranha because we actually went up there to put our lines into fish for, for the, to, get, to get some fish for dinner that night because that's what we lived on was piranha and so forth. Yeah. Well, of course, to dive in the water, now we've got to deal with the piranha. But we've learned over the years you deal with the problem of the moment and worry about the problem of the future some other time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lesser uh, of two yeah. evils. Yeah. So, so we dived in the water. And, of course, the, the, the bees left us immediately. But now, of course, we were starting to react to the stings. We actually had to help each other back into the kayaks. The piranha never did get us at all. That's we were okay. But then we had to give, you know, we had EpiPens. EpiPens. 
even even with like i mean i'm thinking amazon and you're talking about uncontacted tribes and poison arrows and stuff like that sounds like something out of a movie but for you before you go on this expedition to the amazon i are you aware of where the tribes are were you kind of you know similar to when you're with the inuit people were you given kind of a rundown on this is where you got to avoid this is how you do you know what i mean like that kind of yeah, so we, we contacted a government agency in Brazil um, and Peru, two government agencies who know where these tribes are and know whether they might be friendly on the way down. They can only give you limited, limited information because the mood of these people tends to change back and forth according to what's been going on in their lives. And it's their territory, so they have every right to it. And we were just foreigners passing through. Um, and so we, we had, but we had to learn as much as we possibly could about the tribes that we might meet. But then there were other, other areas where uh, we would go ashore and there would be a little school. And uh, we went into um, several small, tiny little jungle schools. And um, there would be a teacher uh, very often could speak English. Oh, wow. And, they uh, um, and so I, I very often I I, well, I I guess at least a half a dozen times I actually spoke to students in these little little jungle schools and they uh, would ask the most interesting questions. Yeah. Um, now these are kids who live in the jungle. Their only road is the river. There yeah. are no roads. And in uh, the uh, high water season, the water is about thirty feet higher than the low season. It's up and down, and so their 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 life is green, uh, all sorts of greenery, vines, trees, beautiful flowers, and all this sort of thing, and the water, and the fish, and all the animals that live in this environment. That's all they know. So they want to know uh, something about um, what do you do? I tell them about going to the North Pole. Hmm. I'm walking across ice. Now, how do you answer? A child, when they say to you, "What is ice?" Yeah, true. Yeah, true. It's ice. How do you spell that in English? Yeah, this way. And now, what is it? Yeah. Well, it's frozen water. Well, that really gets a funny look. Hey. <laughs> frozen water. Well, what is frozen? Wow. Now you're really up a creek because what is frozen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's water that goes into if you can imagine something very small and square, okay, they can small and square, all right, they've kind of got that, and it's hard, okay, and it's very cold. Oh, really? Now it's hard to lose it. Very cold? No, I don't know much about that. And it, you mean something so cold it goes hard? Oh, no, 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 that's... That you're 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 not telling us the truth. Wow, yeah. This is one that see my husband now, he'll back me up, right? Yeah, Bill says, yep. Yeah. It freezes, it goes hard. You could knock your knuckles on it, he said he said one time. Mm. Even make a little noise on it, so hard. And then you put it in your mouth, it'll melt. And now they're <laughs> 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 gone. <laughs> yeah, well yeah. I'm you spent 30 minutes trying to figure out what makes an ice cube <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, I am an entirely different part of the world. Yeah. Isn't that so, crazy, though? Because, I mean, their perspective, especially living, you know, 
very uh, very much isolated in, in that setting. Um, man, their perspective on life must be so so unique. And and uh, um, how do you get from one place to another? We go by a road. Oh, a road. What is a road? Well, a road is a hard path. If you can imagine going through the jungle and you're not on dirt or not in water or any swamp, it's on something that's very hard and you don't go through it. And they look at it and you say, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? Here she goes again with a nice cube yeah. hard. Now that she's walking on something else that's hard. And well, how do they make it hard? Well, now you're done. You, at this point, you wish you'd never bought this. You'd never yeah. process. I mean, this was a bad subject to start with. You suddenly <laughs> realize, how do I back up? But you can't. You have to say, well, they make it hard with big machines. Uh-oh. Oh, big Uh-oh. machines. <laughs> and, yeah. and at this point, Bill was making eyes at me. You better get out of this one fast. This is going nowhere. And so then you start trying to back up out of this, say, well, uh, uh, you know, uh, and then, then you realize, I got to go through with this. I can't, I, yeah. I have, to, I can't leave in the middle of this. Well, there are large machines that turn out black stuff that, that sets up hard on the ground when it goes on the ground. Oh, I see. Oh, they must be big machines. How big are they? Oh, they're as big as a car, bigger than a car. A car? What's a car? <laughs> yeah, so it just goes on and on, isn't it? <laughs> it's just like, it's just what an education because it certainly made us think. Yeah. And so you go on, you have to explain, you know. And uh, But anyway, we, we did get the path that you could walk through the jungle that you don't sink into. And we did get that pretty well figured out. Yeah. I had to leave the situation as big as a car as fast as I could because you can't explain something that is on four wheels that go around and around. I know what a wheel is. Yeah. Well, you've got four of them. And then you sit a box on top of that and you sit in it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how these, the teachers, because you're obviously translating through teachers, right? I wonder how they came about speaking English. Or they go down there already speaking. They're employed by the um, the governments to go in to try to, uh, you know, teach the kids something about mostly what they try to teach the kids is a little bit about the outside world, that there is an outside world out there beyond yours um but they try to teach them um, better nutrition and better health uh taking care of their health Mm. Um, and uh um there's a lot of uh um marital abuse in these places they try to stop that um they go in for those there's more more not the hardcore education as we see it they go in more the humanitarian Mm. sort of uh, type of thing um, where making making their lives better, more healthier, better eating habits. Um, they have no need for a pharmacy or uh, medicine because their medicine is all around them. Yeah. They've got something out there for everything. Yeah. And, uh, um, and then some of their, uh, and of course they try to be very, these days they try to be very careful about um, getting around their religious or their um, spiritual beliefs mm. as well. Keep them intact and their language intact, but try to bring in better nutrition and better, um, just better living habits. Yeah, yeah. Keep, um, and they hand out um, antiparasitic 
medicines and things like that to them as well. So, so it's that basically that sort of education rather than uh, reading, writing, and and, and math. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean. You did two expeditions down there in your time in the Amazon and not just paddling, but, you know, stopping off and especially your photo taking. Was there anything, any, any of, in terms of highlights of what you saw in terms of from an animal point of view, um, maybe oh. your favorite thing you captured while you were there? Well, um, I had some unfavorite things that snakes, I don't do, coming from New Zealand, I don't do snakes well I don't think all. anyone does snakes well. <laughs> yeah. Just, and there are some really bad ones down there. Some there's one that hangs out of the tree, looks like a just another branch. Oh wow! Underneath it, it drops down. It's like they say you don't even have time to take, say a ten second prayer and you're dead. Yeah. So it's looking out for those things. You always also learn anacondas you, too. Oh yes, yes, yes. There are plenty of those. You yes. saw them. Yes, yeah, we did see them, and you stay well away from them because they. Now we did. One thing that really upset us badly for days was um, we went into a village and they had a photo there. And one of the people who had missionaries or whoever, teachers, had taken the photo of this began a con. It was a, it was a huge one. And in the middle of it was a big bump. It was a big bump. And the bump was a 15-year-old boy. Oh, my the goodness. And it was just... I mean, to see that, I didn't take a photo of it. No, they want, you know, you can take a photo of the photo sort of thing. And then, no, I, I couldn't do that. That's, yeah, that's crazy. And we left there, it was days before we got over there. That. that was. Yeah, yeah very real danger, eh? Why don't you cut it open? Too late. The digestive juices have already done its yeah. job. Shucks, you're not, stay away from them then. <laughs> Yeah, and so, so there's those sorts of things. Um, jaguar at night, um, we did see one or, or two or three. They're very difficult to see, but we were there for so long that we did see two or three of those. But fleeting glimpses, did get some photos though. Good. Uh, and then, and of course, just the the beauty of the place, um, the orchids that you spend vast amounts of money on in the store here. Yeah. Um, they're just growing wild. And uh, there are plants that I grow in my living room yeah. and constantly trying to remember to water them before they die. Oh, we've got a new flatmate here that's, we call her the plant lady, and I've got plants coming out my ears right now. <laughs> so I can relate. And then whenever she goes away, I'm, me and my other flatmate are on plant watering duty. So it's a very um, stressful task. <laughs> yeah, oh, and, and I have a very difficult time remembering to... Like my, they say you kill your indoor plants by overwatering. Mine will never suffer that. They will <laughs> from dying. They just, you know, they they, they dip down. I water them, and oh, they come right up. What the miracle of, of plant life is! Yeah. But it was so difficult in the beginning to you go on up on the, on the land to put your tent up at night because you don't want to. We could sleep in our kayaks, but there are the caiman. These caiman are, are the are the crocodiles, mm. and they're everywhere. And you, you know they can be very bad, and so you need to get up on the bank to um, to camp. Well, to put the tent up, and there's all these plants. There's one called a prayer plant with beautiful green leaves and a very special looking flower. And I said to Bill, I can't put the tent up on here. It's the plants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And he was the same because he's very much a plant person. And so we'd move the tent over here in a little gap, you know, and, oh, no, doesn't, don't, don't, there's another one there. We can't, and they were recognising all these different plants that we spend vast amounts of money here to try to grow in our living room and finally kill them because we forget to water them. And here they are just growing wild. So, but in the, after a little while, it was, oh, well, okay, put the tent up and, and they'll spring to life again next day when we leave. They'll be all right. Yeah. But in the beginning, it was really hilarious when we thought back to what our very careful, don't oh, oh, don't step on that plant there. Oh, my gosh, that's a that's a red vein prayer plant. Oh, we can't touch that one. Or oh, here's an orchid over here and all this sort of thing. It was just... <laughs> Yeah, nonstop. Well, people can, um, I think on your website, you've got like a public gallery. People can go and, can get, can go and see some of those really awesome yeah, awesome right. photos, yeah. eh? Yeah, uh. the, but it's interesting. We, we met such a wide variety of people. Um, some uh, are very, um, uh, very careful uh, and your skin will, many times, as, as we have felt in many parts of the world, our skin is way too white. And... Um, if we could have just uh, painted ourselves over a nice soft brown, we'd be so much better off in some of these cultures. You know, mm. we're so very aware of the white Caucasian skin, and because it's not well received received in many parts of the world, mm. and uh, with good reason. Yeah. And so um, these people who've been uh, had some unfortunate experiences with white people going down there. Hundred percent. They're pretty careful. And, and something I love about you, though, Helen, is, and I know I picked up on this and some of my friends did too on the last podcast we did, is that um, you are very respectful and understanding and come in wanting to learn, you know? Every every culture environment you've been in, you come in with this, I want to learn and I want to, um, you know. I have to teach you. Yeah. I'm here for you to teach me how do you live. Yeah. I don't have to come here and tell you how I'm going to change you uh, to to um, this is why the missionaries have had to change now they have changed their we've been in places where and we feel it's very sad um, we have nothing against pure missionary work it's very good and we believe in it but in the past there have been missionaries go in and taken advantage of of indigenous people. And mm. called savages, and mm. all the, the old days of calling them savages, and all this. I mean, who's the savage? It certainly isn't them. Mm. But you have to wonder about yourself, yeah. the way we behave. And so, I mean, the Caucasian way of behaving sometimes is not very pretty. And so, who is the savage around here? Mm. And then they've forbidden them to speak their own language. Well, that's contributed vastly to the loss of these ancient languages. Well, even Maori in New Zealand. That's right. Well, thank goodness they're, you know, bringing that up mm. in the schools. Mm. I mean, when I was in school in New Zealand, we never spoke any word of Maori, only mm. Pākehā mm. or something like that, you yeah. know. And what a shame. It, I, I feel cheated because it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful people, beautiful language. I mean, and I, I feel quite cheated now that we didn't have that when I was in school in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. And so you can make up for it now. You can go online. You can do your bit of learning. Mm. And so, um, but this has been happening in places all over the world, and and the Amazon certainly. This is what made has made many of these tribes very careful mm. of that white skin that comes amongst them. 
and and also sometimes they have been uh, made to dress. Now, these are naked savages that we used to hear about. Mm. They're very smart. They're not savage to start with, and they're very smart in their dress. They just don't wear anything, Mm. very little, because who is the stupid person down there in the Amazon with their clothing? It was us. Got the shirts and the pants on, right? Yeah. Well, they're rotting off our body with almost 100% humidity. We're, we're up to over 95% humidity every day, 24 Yeah. And the growth of bacteria is amazing. Mm. Our, our clothing was literally rotting off our body by the time we got through like four months of paddling. Our shoes were already gone. We're on the second lot. Yeah. And it's very unhealthy, and it's it's just quite disgusting in many ways. These people come with a little bit of thing around their waist, and that's about it, you know, mm. covering essentials basically, and that's all. And they they they're clean. Mm. And they're not got well. Some of these uh, former missionaries in the, in the past, not now, but in the past, have have forbidden them using their own language. And, and they've made them dress in pants and shirts. Well, then they got pneumonia wow. because they're, they're wet. Your clothes are wet all the time. Yeah. Now, we would have loved to have stripped off too, but, oh, no, we just couldn't quite get it. <laughs> yeah. But that's where they make sense. Yeah. And, um, and they were getting pneumonia because of this and dying. Well, that makes you think, who are the clever ones, you know? Oh, yeah, it's certainly not us. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, 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 not us. Uh, we're floundering around uh, there um, uh, in our clothing and uh, um, just, I, I don't know, we, we just, uh, there's so many things we could see our shortcoming of, my goodness gracious, I mean, these people, we've really got it right. They know what they're doing. Yeah. And then you go up, up north to the Arctic, <clears throat> but the, you know, they know how to deal with the cold. Yeah. And they... They just uh, every indigenous people have they know what they're doing in their own environment. Yeah, we just have to go there and say, Hey, show us what you're doing, and we'll do the same. Yeah, because our social customs didn't yeah. allow us to run around with a little G string on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but I mean, the reality is, you've the, the amount of adventures you've been on, ranging from ice to, to Amazon to the desert, <clears throat> you've had to learn and adapt. But it's really funny because I I had this in my mind to talk about the first time we caught up, and we never and we never did. But when I read up about the things you've done, I can't help but be gobsmacked because obviously you've been on these awesome adventures. And then I read National Luge Champion, <laughs> and and I read represented three three countries in track and field, which is completely. Well, I mean, I guess it is in line with being active and, and doing your thing. But I'm very curious, Helen, how we go from hiking to the North Pole, whether it was before or after, whenever the timing was. How how did you become the National Luge Champion? Well, it was sort of interesting. Uh, my husband and I were just as crazy as each other, they say. Yeah. We always said it's just as well we married because uh, nobody else would have had us. <laughs> right. <laughs> But um, we had 55 years of the most amazing marriage. So, you know. That's awesome. He was, was the perfect spouse for me. We had so much fun together. But the luge, 
Well, you see, I was involved in track and field and and for a long time for three countries and, uh, you know, New Zealand, the country of my birth, and then Guatemala, where I was a permanent resident, and then uh, for five years, and then United States. Well, but then one day, Bill and I were watching TV and we saw Luge. And Bill said, you know, that looks very interesting. I wonder what it would be like to zip down that, here's a helicopter part, and uh, he said, zip down that track on that little sled. And uh, no brakes, that really appealed to him. And I said, well, you know, this might be kind of interesting to see what, what would happen. Yeah. So we went off to New York, uh, to Lake Placid, to the big track there, and uh, presented ourselves and said, so anybody, you know, can we join, you know, some sort of a group to where we can start seeing if we're suited to this? Oh, yes, okay. So off we, we went to this, this group, and we found that we did very well. Yeah. And uh, uh, Bill was, ex he was a gifted athlete, and we're both athletic, and and had enough strength and all these sorts of things that it took to ride the sled. It just seemed as, and we weren't, you, we, we weren't, uh, you know, both rather of short stature, which helps to curve, get around these curves and so forth. So everything was working well. And uh, so we said, oh, this is okay. So let's continue. So anyway, long story short, we, uh, we, we, we received coaching and training and so forth and, and our equipment. And then uh, we won some races. And then we both made the uh, United States national team in 74, 70, the winter of 73, 74. Mm. And then, and then um, Bill, being a helicopter pilot, said, look, you know, I better quit because uh, I, I, uh, you know, I'm injured. You, injuries and luge usually can be very serious, especially yeah. on the track we were racing on then. Not so much now, yeah. but then pretty hairy. Oh, I can and imagine. So, he said, you know, I do need two feet and two hands to fly a helicopter. And <clears throat> so he said, you know, I won races in Europe and he did very well. He said, I'm, I'm satisfied. And I decided I'll go on and I'll give myself two years to win the national championship. And which seemed ridiculous at the time. Because <laughs> yeah. The person who'd won the national championship to that point had won it 10 years in a row. And she was very good. Oh, very wow. well. Her technique is, was beautiful. Yeah. And mine was still in the rough stages because I was basically a beginner. But I had it figured out. I've got the strength and the coordination that I take from my years in track and field and sports. I'll apply it to the sport because it was already working out well for me. My times on the track were getting really fast. I think I might have a chance. So I, I kept at it. And I, then I did win the national championship and then I made another, another national team. That's basically how it came. But then after I made that second national team, I decided I'd better quit because, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd had some pretty big smashes. Yeah. <laughs> what I had to do was now my my main competitor, her technique was beautiful and um, she was extremely good. Um, just a real picture perfect to watch. Whereas I was rougher because I didn't have that longevity of experience and the technique so i had to really just go for it <laughs> mm. which i did which meant i got bumped up pretty good but but I, I i got what i wanted i reached my goal and so that's what i wanted and i did it and and when you when you because i know you know you've spoken at many many events like you say and and you talk about your experiences when you do, do you bring up your experience losing often <laughs> no much because you know if i talk too much about my, my life as a loser it really does put the, the stamp of insanity on my lifestyle completely <laughs> so. i mean if you had doubts 
if you thought there might be some shred of hope there before, then nah. if I told you about to sl- the loose, my life on a loose sled, they don't just sweep all down. <laughs> Weigh it completely, then you would know for sure. <laughs> yeah, and what did you what did you do track and field wise when you represented the three countries? Well, that's pretty crazy too. Discus throwing. Oh yeah, and I was actually I was at a um you know sports speed you know <coughs> excuse me being a teacher um we do like our um, sports athletics days, and I was on discus. I was the discus throw um recorder, and you know the kids would come to me and I'd explain how to throw the discus and. Some kids can throw some discus, discus, I can tell you, better than I could, but, yeah. yeah well, it's just uh, it's a bit unusual because I'm pretty short for the discus. You know, usually you're very tall and got a lot of weight, but I made up for it in speed and, and balance and those sorts of things. And then I uh, had some really outstanding coaching overseas, and, and I finally I threw over 200 feet overseas here. Um, um, but, um, yeah, I represent three countries and, that's sort of another odd thing. People say, like you just said, well, what was your event or discus throwing? And they look at me and say, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you still keep up with track and field today? Do you watch it on the telly? Um, to, yeah, when, when, I, when I can. Um, um, you don't see it a lot here. Um, it's not a terribly big spectator sport here. Right. Um, so you don't see it a lot, but I do tune in. I do, I do enjoy watching it. Uh, um, as much as I can, but you just don't. You've got to really go search for it online on the on the on TV. Yeah, unless the Olympics come around, that's the case. Eh? Yeah, it's really. Then it really goes crazy. It's all you do see, but but it's um yeah, it's it's it was basically a, <clears throat> I wanted to do it, and so I did, and mm. and uh, then I just one of those things where I just decided that's what I wanted to do, and so I got the job done. Mm. And I think I never I never mentioned this um, with you last time, but you look back on the things you've done, Helen, and and the things still to do. You know what I mean? I like you said last time. I'm only eighty. I think you're eighty two. Last time we caught up, I think you've had a birthday in between then. So happy birthday! I'm eighty three now, but I'm still a work in progress. I yeah. I'm I'm the first person to walk the full length of Death Valley. I did that. I started on my eightieth birthday. I've done two national parks since then. I did delay things this last year because of COVID, the, the pandemic, but I'm starting again this fall and uh, I'll go to Yellowstone. I'll, I'll, I'll hike about 600 miles wow. and document that for Adventure Classroom. That'd be so cool. And, and so so I'm still a work in progress. I've got I've got hundreds of miles to, to walk yet. So. Yeah, well, I'm excited to hear them. But, I mean, when your adventures and experience culminate in National Geographic, who, you know, People would, you know, say are the, the forerunners for for all things, you know, outdoors and, and pursuit wise. Um, name you as one of the greatest explorers of the twentieth century. I mean, that must be that must be pretty special, you know. Well, it's nice to be recognised, but I, I, you know, and it certainly it's a great honour uh, to get the various awards that I've received over the years, and but I. Um, you know, I just put it that that's nice, but I still doesn't mean it's the end. Yeah. Um, I'm still a work in progress. It's just uh, I'm. It's part of the growing and part of the experience. Because uh, the world is an enormously interesting place. One thing I would love to do, but I don't think it's ever going to happen, is go back to the Sahara. Mm. I love Sahara. 
I loved, you know, with Bill, even though we had some pretty tough times. Yeah, it's pretty hairy moments. <laughs> uh, the people in places and to see how they have to live, um, how people will be out there and you look around, just nothing. You're living in a little hut thing on sand. Where is your food? What do you do? My goodness, they can bring a meal up out of practically nothing and they're satisfied and they're happy. And uh, But I, the Sahara is very difficult. All those countries, um, Algeria, Mauritania, Mali, Shard, and, or Niger and Shard, and then the Sudan, we crossed all of those on our 4,000-mile trek across the Sahara. and But they're also, they're totally lawless. In the northern part of each country, there's no law anymore. And uh, the fighting, the civil war, and the, and ISIS and Al-Qaeda have take, set up camps in those places. Mm. There's no way. To start with, you'd never get permission to go to cross any of the borders. If you did get in, you'd never get out alive. Mm. Um, any foreigners that have tried it have been captured, um, tortured, killed, and governments have paid ransom and they'd still kill the people. Uh, so you just don't go. I mean, then to, to go into a place under those circumstances or try to, then it's not responsible because now you become a political a political pawn where this group have got you and they're asking your government to give them money. So what have you done? Just create an international incident that you had no business being there anyway. So I probably will never be able to go back, but I just love the challenge of those sandstorms and the the heat and the, all the stuff that goes on. It's just, yeah. it's an amazing place. Yeah. And I remember that was one of the most fascinating aspects of our last conversation too, just hearing how you got your guides and you, and you had those run-ins and all those things. And I wonder if I was to throw the throw the stage to you and for someone that's, uh, it doesn't have to be a young go-getter. I mean, you walked in, well, you were 50, weren't you, when you walked the, yeah. yeah. So, you know, to anybody that is a go-getter, what would you say? How would you, I mean, there's so, you know, there's stories upon stories upon stories, but how would you summarize and, and, and inspire someone that wants to go and do it? Well, to start with, I always say a goal without a plan is only a dream. You've got to plan to be successful. You've got to, to plan. But in deciding what your goals are, people say, well, how do you set goals and so forth? Well, there's not an awful lot to it. The main thing is, you know, we all know we put our foot in our mouth numerous times. <laughs> we've made mistakes. We've done something that's really dumb that you'd rather not think about anymore. Well, I always say, look, the mistakes have been made, learn from them and go forward. Don't keep looking back. What you've done was really dumb maybe, and, and but keep go looking forward and keep setting those goals, always looking forward, taking your past experience forward with you. Set your goals, plan very carefully, and then go for it. Mm -hmm. And really believe in both your plan, your goal, your plan, and believe in yourself and go for it. Mm -hmm. And learn as you go, keep learning as you go. If you're involving indigenous cultures, go to them, say, hey, I'm here to learn. Let yeah. them teach you. Then you come away much better person. It's amazing what this sort of travel and uh, what it can do in your life. The things you can learn from those people is just amazing. Yeah. 
And so it's just a matter of uh, realizing you can do it. And we're all the same. I'm no different than anybody else. Yeah. Just I found my path in life rather early in life, about nine years old. I figured, started figuring it out pretty carefully. And um, I've just been very fortunate in the people who've, who've surrounded me with their support and encouragement. But we're, nobody is more special than anybody else. We're all created equal. We're all mm. okay. Mm. have to realize that we can do what we want to do. Just get off the couch. Yeah. You know, this is what I'm trying to tell kids with my national parks program. Get off the couch. Get away from your computer. Get away from those games, at least for a while. Mm. Not permanently, for a while. Get out and enjoy nature and go You know, pick some flowers and look at the leaves and see how things grow and look up at the sky and see the clouds and just, you know, see what nature is. It's, it's a lot out there for us to see and enjoy. Yeah. And it makes you more relaxed and happier too. Totally. Oh, 100%. I mean, I'm at my, I'm at my, I remember when I go for big bush walks or hikes or anything like that, I always leave, I actually do it now with work, but I leave my phone at home. Oh, yes, and just yes. enjoy the moment. I remember, you know, I was in Cambodia at the Angkor Wat temples, beautiful. But I was seeing it. With, I was seeing, looking at it because I even when I went to Cambodia and to Vanuatu, I, I left my phone in New Zealand. <laughs> um, so if if I was stuck in the bush, I was a bit in trouble. But it doesn't matter because I was seeing everything through my eyes. But I remember looking around and seeing everyone with the camera lenses and phones, and 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 and, and they were seeing things the same thing I was seeing, but they were seeing it through through a screen. And not enjoying the moment as much and taking it in, you know. That's right, and I do some guiding uh, and of groups in the Cascade Mountains, and um, every now and again. And the law is all phones are left at the trailhead. No phones. I don't want to hear those phones ringing. I don't want you on those phones. You leave them in in the uh, in the vehicle at the, at the trailhead, mm. and that's that. And there's and there's no exception. Oh well, I get. Well, what if we get lost? Well, I'm your guide. We're not going to get lost. Oh well, what if somebody breaks a leg? Well, if you break a leg, too bad. We'll just haul you out the way you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the phone stays on the trailhead. Yeah. So that's it. Because I've done some guiding of groups um, of children of young of youth who have uh, um, from juvenile detention centres, and they. They want them to go out and, and, and experience uh, some outdoors um, hikes and so forth. It's a little bit of a challenge to them. So I choose a, a suitable route uh, according to the, the group I'm taking. And, and these, these groups can be quite challenging because uh, they want, you know, that they, they, they're they there to disobey the, mm. the, the yeah. uh, guide. And oh, so be a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't worry. I've had plenty of those experiences hey helen honestly i think um i'll be speaking on behalf of everyone that's listened to your first episode and said brad you got to get her back on i mean the amount of times i if 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 this was a video that we'd put out onto youtube because i know it's only audio you'd see my mouth just wide open half the time at the stories but um i really appreciate you hopping on 10 oh it must be eleven thirty now is it for you it's uh eleven thirty. yeah 7.30 a.m. New Zealand time. Um, but on your Friday to come in and share more of your story and your journey and, and, and you know, inspire those that are listening. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to hear what's next. We're going to have to do this again. <laughs> I'd love to, yes. And it's always nice to hear a Kiwi accent.
Well, once again, Helen, thank you for sharing um, your stories with us. And I hope that people are inspired and encouraged by Helen's story. Um, and get out there and share it. Share her story because this is, you know, one of New Zealand's very best. Um, I'd say one of New Zealand's treasures. So, Helen, credit to you. And you can check out um, her books and her photo, uh, photography online at helenthayer.com. Um, it's all up there, all the resources. You can go and check them out for yourselves. But um, once again, thanks for listening to the podcast. We're on Instagram, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, and we're loving it. Kia ora.